Greetings, friends. Welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the film review podcast where good taste and bad taste collide. Cue the sound effect. Thank you very much. My name is Whitney Seibold. I'm a film critic. I contribute to Slash Film. I contribute quite a lot to Slash Film. And uh, with me, as always, is... Actually, he's not here. Um, Hi. I'm bringing this uh, show to you solo. We're trying something a little bit new. Uh, William Bibiani, my usual co-host, is... In the midst of a big move, he's moving from one apartment to another. Ordinarily, we uh, would record together because we've been neighbors for many, many years. In fact, we met when William was living in the apartment just across from mine. And when he moved, he moved a block over, and it was really easy to get together to record. Now, because of circumstances, we are no longer so close. Uh, And because of the big move, and because so much time has passed, William has not been able to see a lot of movies. Uh, I have. So we're going to try this. We're going to try me recording by myself and see if that does anything for us, if this is actually listenable or if it's just me rattling on and on and on. Uh, But enough of me rattling on and on and on. Why don't we talk about the movies I'm going to review for you because there are seven that I'm going to talk about. Uh, No, there are six I'm going to talk about. I didn't get to the seventh one. Apologize for that. Uh, The first one I'm going to be talking about is Martin Scorsese's new film, Killers of the Flower Moon. Uh, Martin Scorsese has made another movie. Hooray. I'm going to be talking about the Persian version. I'm going to be talking about a a French end-of-life drama called More Than Ever. I'm going to be talking about a really freaky cult movie with stop-motion animation, science fiction elements called Divinity. And I'm going to be talking about Sung Kang's directorial debut, a film called Shaky Shivers, which actually came out a couple weeks ago, but I never got a chance to actually talk about it. Uh, And I'm also going to be talking about the new horror movie, Five Nights at Freddy's, uh, the movie based on the popular video game. And I think I'll start with Five Nights at Freddy's because that's the the big one for the weekend, as William likes to say. We like to start with the big one. And even though this film was released in theaters and on Peacock on the same day, it's really been doing really well at the box office. It made somewhere in the neighborhood of $80 million domestically. Uh, This was on a $20 million budget, and I imagine that's because of name recognition. I uh, know this is based on a video game created by somebody named Scott Cawthorn. From what I understand about this video game, uh, Scott Cawthorn actually made, like, Christian video games. Like, for a Christian audience, they were always very wholesome, and he made, like, a lumberjack-style game that was really panned by, like, critics and fans because uh, the critics and fans thought that the characters in the game were really kind of animatronic-looking, that they looked really fake, and uh, Scott Cawthorn was so miffed by this that he decided to uh, just sort of throw it in people's faces and make a horror game about killer animatronics. It is set at a... The games, and this movie, are set at a Chuck E. Cheese's style uh, kids pizza restaurant that was really hip in the 80s. It's called Freddy Fazbear's, and wouldn't you know it, in the games, the animatronics come alive and they stalk you at night. And I didn't delve too deeply into the lore of the games, but from what I understand, it's incredibly complicated. Like, how those animatronics came to life, and who was in charge of them, and there's something about not just like children's souls being stored inside the animatronics to make them come to life. But there's also like actually dead bodies being held inside the same animatronics. Anyway, here we go with a new feature film. It's directed by Emma Tammy. It's only her second uh, film as a, a feature film as a director. And 
It stars Josh Hutcherson as a kind of a a layabout guy who just can't really seem to hold down a job. He is raising his younger sister. His younger sister is played by Piper Rubio. She's like maybe 11. And he needs a job desperately because his evil aunt, who's played by Mary Stuart Masterson, good to see her again, uh, is trying to uh, take his sister away and raise him, raise her without him. And now he has decided to take a job at this place, Freddy Fazbear's, at the behest of Matthew Lillard, uh, playing uh, the this uh, vaguely sinister, uh, uh, like, jobs uh, connect for him. The job involves going to Freddy Fazbear's late at night and just watching the place. It has been abandoned since the 1980s. There's, you know, pizza boxes still there and the animatronics are still there. There's still some electronics uh, or there's still some electricity in the building. And he just has to sort of spend five nights there. Well, he doesn't have to spend five nights there. He ends up spending five nights there. Uh... You would think with a simple premise like this, you'd have a really sort of efficient slasher movie, security guard in scary pizza restaurant, and your mind starts filling all these wonderful ideas. Somebody gets killed by maybe a pizza cutter, or someone gets force-fed pizza to death, or someone gets tied to a skee-ball machine and gets killed with skee-balls. That kind of stuff would be fun, and none of that is in this PG-13 rated movie. In fact, Maybe it's because the games are so convoluted that this movie is convoluted, too. It is 110 minutes long. This thing needs to be in and out in 85. It's one of those kinds of premises. Uh, but no, we have to go in and delve into not into Mike. That's the Josh Hutcherson character. We need to evolve into Mike's backstory. We need to figure out just how badly he uh, is hurting and how desperate he needs that job. That part's fine. But why did we also need this extra wrinkle where he keeps having dreams about a younger brother of his that was abducted when he was a child, and the dreams tie into the ghosts that are infecting the Freddy Fazbear's machines, and of course it all tie- it's all tied to a mysterious cop who's played by Vanessa Shelley, uh, or no, Vanessa's, Vanessa Shelley's the character, is played by uh, Elizabeth Lale, and... It's uh, it's just there's way too much story going on at the same time. Not enough is explained like it, it's eventually revealed that there is a mastermind of some kind behind these killer animatronics. But did they know that the animatronics were coming to life? Was that their goal? Were they trying to get the animatronics to co- come to life? They were committing other crimes as well. Were they committing those crimes in order to do something with the animatronics in the pizza restaurant or was that just a coincidence? None of that kind of stuff is explained. Uh, it's it's just such a big convoluted mess. You're just you're really you're literally yelling questions at the screen as the film goes on. And because it's PG thirteen, we can't even have fun with like the gore and the kills. There is a sequence where some punks break into Freddy Fazbear's, and the animatronics stalk them and kill them. That should be kind of fun, right? It should be kind of silly, maybe, in a Killer Clowns from Outer Space kind of way. I love Killer Clowns from Outer Space, by the way. Uh, But no, none of that. Uh, If you are into the games, however, and this is not something I recognized, but there's going to be a lot of references to the games, there's going to be a lot of Easter eggs for people who are paying attention, and... There's a lot of cameos from the YouTubers that made Five Nights at Freddy's, the original game, famous. Uh, Five Nights at Freddy's 
what got its traction in like 2014 about when uh, a lot of famous YouTubers would play the game uh, and do like reaction videos because there were a lot of jump scares and they would film them scare themselves jumping and that's what made the game famous. People would turn tune into these uh, YouTubers who are watching these jump scares. So the YouTubers are now in the movie. So I did actually recognize uh, Matthew Patrick, a.k.a. Matt Pat. Uh, I have an eight-year-old son. He loves Matt Pat, and he plays a waiter in one scene. Uh, there's also uh, Corey X Kenshin is not a, f- a YouTuber I'm familiar with, but I know he, he has his following. He plays a, a cab driver. So... There's going to be, I think your mileage is going to vary on this film, depending on how familiar you are with the material. I think if you like Five Nights at Freddy's and are really deep into the lore, you'll probably be forgiving about how little the movie actually communicates. If you, like me, are not familiar with the lore, you're going to be asking a lot of questions. Maybe there's stuff in the games that answers those questions. But if it's not in the movie, you made a bad movie, Petey. It is really, really obnoxious how little they actually bother to communicate what the actual story is for this goddamn thing. So, uh, I'm, I'm not, I'm a little bored. I'm really confused. And frustratingly, the animatronics aren't terribly scary. And, and again, I want to say that I've said this before about, you know, um, when a movie monster isn't scary, that's that's not me trying to be, like, macho. That's not me trying to say, oh, it's not scary. I need something a lot more extreme to scare me. It doesn't need something extreme to scare me. It just needs to be filmed in an effective way. You need to present these monsters as if they're really monsters. Uh, you can't just sort of have vague Halloween-y kind of imagery and expect me to be a little bit frightened. I'm not even unnerved by fi- the Five Nights at Freddy's animatronics. There's a few weirdo moments. One of the animatronics is a fox that's like missing some of its skin and it has a hook for a hand. It's like a little bit more robotic. That one looks a little off, but the other ones look a little too friendly. If you go back to the original Chuck E. Cheese's animatronics that they played uh, at the pizza restaurants, uh, by the way, prior to being Chuck E. Cheese's, they were part of a band called the Rockafire Explosion, part of the showbiz pizza chain way back in the day. And if you can find that really wonderful documentary film called The Rockafire Explosion, it delves into the mythology of those characters. That film's way more interesting than Five Nights at Freddy's. But those actual animatronics that you had in the real restaurants were a little weird and kind of unnerving. And of course, that's what this film is based on. But if you're going to make a film based on that, make the animatronics at least as unnerving as what we saw in real life. Don't make them, like friendlier versions of that anyway that five nights is freddy's is is it's just no good um it, it's i guess it's i guess it's good for like maybe 13 year olds having like a sleepover something that's a little bit frightening kind of halloweeny but not terribly hard-edged uh not terribly scary there's like a few shots of violence uh there's at least one gory shot of somebody missing a face that's kind of scary, I guess, or at least it's kind of gross. But, you know, if you're looking for an actually you know, good, thoughtful horror film with a good screenplay, then Five Nights in Freddy's isn't the one. Uh, something that does have a good screenplay, it was written by Eric Roth and Martin Scorsese, uh, is Killers of the Flower Moon. Scorsese made another one. Uh, and I, what I appreciate about Scorsese as he, uh, you know, enters you know, his late 70s and he's in his early 80s now, is that he has become intensely interested in unpacking and de-romanticizing 
American crime, specifically American crime. That is the kinds of crime that America is has sort of calcified around. Uh, back in 2005, Scorsese made Gangs of New York, and that was supposedly about you know the gangs of New York, but specifically about how those loosely knit gangs of criminals and and thugs and knife wielding just street fighters kind of formed a lot of the basis of local politics and by extension the rest of American politics. A lot of what we believe in as a country sort of stemmed from these petty, violent grievances that started on a street level. And I appreciate some of the ideas that go into that movie, but that movie's a mess. It was way too big a production. It looks really impressive, but it's just sprawling all over the place. It's really chaotic. I don't think it's a well-told movie, uh, well-told story. Um, It's not one of my favorite Scorsese's, but I feel like with Killers of the Flower Moon, he finally got Gangs of New York right, in that he is really actually hooked into the pettiness and crime that lies right at the heart of the American ethos. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio plays a character named Ernest. He has been, uh, he's a World War I veteran. This takes place in about 1920, 1921 in Osage country, uh, in what is uh, in America, Oklahoma. And he has gone to stay with his uncle, who's played by Robert De Niro. He plays uh, William King Hale. Uh, William King Hale is, is a real person. Look him up. And what happened is uh, the Osage people discovered oil on their property and they became some of the wealthiest people in North America, more or less. And what William King Hale did was immediately insinuate himself into the local Osage population. He decided to uh, you know, present himself as kind of a hero of the local community, a community that's overlooked by the American uh, government and insinuated himself into, you know, spoke their language and essentially tried to take control of all of their wealth and funnel them directly into the pockets of white people, specifically of white men. Uh, He has set up this vastly complicated network of white men who would come in and marry Osage women, and then pretty it's made pretty obvious early on the white men would essentially poison their wives with newfangled medicine, saying, oh, this is medicine, I'll give you injections, and it would really slowly be poisoning them, and then, of course, inherit all of their wealth. Uh, This is all done because of quite frankly, white supremacy. They say it out loud. Uh, There's a a really creepy scene about a third of the way into the movie where uh, William King Hale and Ernest are in a a Masonic lodge and you get this sort of white supremacist clubhouse idea of why they're doing this. Now, you go back over sort of Scorsese's many crime dramas that he's made over his career and you'll see sort of his true attitudes emerging as he gets older. Uh, when he was a young man, he made films like Mean Streets, or a little bit later, he made films like Goodfellas, where the criminal lifestyle was seen as super cool. It was actually really you know, energetic and punk rock and seemed to give people a lot. Uh, you know, It ultimately didn't pay, but Scorsese was also very good about showing why it was so alluring in the first place. And then you get into things like Goodfellas where, okay, it's really fun, it's really alluring, he gets to go to, you know, Copacabana, he gets to go to these clubs and have a really wonderful time, and it's not until he gets sort of involved in drugs and pushes it a little too far that he, that is the Ray Liotta character in Goodfellas, begins to, like, things start to fall apart under him. 
becomes less fun. You you fast forward just a few years, we have Casino, where the actual benefit of being a criminal has seemed like less and less appealing. You get to the Wolf of Wall Street, you see that uh, you know the, all of these characters like it, it's making the sort of this bilking, this economic bilking in the Wolf of Wall Street look really fun and exciting because they get to have these really wild parties and they get to have sex with all these hot ladies and there's nude days at the office. But those characters are all douchebags. They're all just horrendously shallow, nerdy assholes that you don't really look up to. They're having a great time, but you're kind of sneering at them. You get to the Irishman, you just get to see that criminals just sort of grow old and die and they're not really happy with anything they've done in their lives. And... With Killers of the Flower Moon, we see these uh, rich white supremacist a-holes, Ernest and William King Hale, doing all these really complicated things, setting up these criminal networks, killing off the Osage population and you know, for their own benefit because they have no morals and they're just white supremacists. And yet we don't see them ever reaping the benefit of what they're doing. Like, we don't see them enjoying their wealth or, like... We don't understand why they're doing it for their own pleasure. Like, all of that is left out of the story. And I think I was really skilled of Scorsese uh, to show that these criminal assholes are not... They're not doing it for... Because they have an end to it. They're doing it for, like, its own sake, essentially. Uh, Lily Gladstone uh, plays a character named Molly. She's uh, an Osage woman that uh, Ernest... Takes a, takes a shine to, and he's really attracted to her, and he ends up marrying her. And, of course, at William King Hale's sort of implication, begins giving her insulin and naturally some poison as well. The movie is not about her, unfortunately, but she has a lot of screen time, and she actually is gives such a great performance. She can just sort of take people down with a look. She communicates a lot, even though uh, the movie just sort of focuses on these two horrible men for a long time. Uh, this is $200 million production, really, really lavish. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, city sets and a lot of really wonderful, authentic detail. And uh, all of that just makes this really lush tapestry very slowly unfold. I love the way that uh, Scorsese has just sort of let his pacing go. Uh, you, you know, The Irishman and now Killers of the Flower Moon. These are incredibly long movies. Killers of the Flower Moon is 206 minutes. But he's just letting every scene kind of breathe, play out as naturally and as as, uh, as, as long as he wants it to. Like, he's he's not in any kind of hurry. And I appreciate that about something like Killers of the Flower Moon. And it's never anything uh, less than riveting. Although... There is a rather, um, there, there are some scenes maybe that Thelma Schoonmaker could have cut near the end where the Ernest character is very slowly coming to realize like the horrors of what he's doing. And it's like, we're already ahead of him at that point. There's a few just scenes near the end where it starts to, uh, starts to drag, but that's just a very minor technical quibble. Uh, I, the actual story is really damning, uh, and if you look up the actual facts of the case, everything, you know, uh, Martin Scorsese is putting in the movie did happen in real life. How the Osage murders really did take place. And it was one of, uh, it was a case uh, investigated by the very early, uh, only recently formed FBI. 
uh, Jesse Plemons shows up late in the film as an FBI agent, and he is investigating these murders. And you know, for a long par- portion of this movie, and Scorsese's really good at this. Hitchcock was good at this. You can f- sort of feel the the noose tightening around the the necks of these people. And then, of course, the very ending, the way uh, the story ends and the way Scorsese explains how the story ended is just this wonderfully stylized masterstroke. It's really, really great. Uh, And, of course, it's a Scorsese movie, so he's going to attract a lot of notable actors. Uh, You know, not only some people you might recognize, like Pat Healy, but Brendan Fraser is in there as well, and John Lithgow is in there as well. uh, Tantu Cardinal uh, plays like a, one of the matriarchs of the Osage Nation, and she's really, really wonderful. Uh, it's it's one of those <laughs> frustratingly timely movies. This is a movie that is really attacking white supremacy. This is a movie that is trying to point out that the natural tendency of white supremacist men to naturally assume that they deserve wealth and that they can, with impunity, commit whatever crimes and murders they need to in order to do it because that's part of the natural order in their brains is something that we should really be talking about right now. Uh, It's something that really reflects what's going on in the world right now. There's a lot of talk out in the world of just sort of white supremacist talking points and everything that's going on. I think Scorsese saw all of that and he is trying to go back and explore a lot of the origins of that. It's no surprise that there's a scene in Killers of the Flower Moon where the characters are going down the street and there's a public parade on the street behind them and it's the Klan. The KKK is just out in public and they're just sort of wave and say, hey, hey, what's going on? It's like, yeah, pretty pretty fucking obvious clue right there anyway i i really really dug it a lot of people are complaining about the length to quote roger ebert no great movie is too long or no bad movie is short short enough uh so it's it takes the time it needs and i really really loved it i think it is uh kind of an important movie uh it, it might be one of the better movies of the year a film that is definitely one of the better movies of the year and this is the kind of film I wait for. Every year, it's maybe less. It's, it's really rare that you come upon sort of that really off-the-wall cult movie that you can just sort of latch onto and enjoy because it is truly striking and incredibly odd and visually unique and just ripe for the midnight movie circuit made by somebody who was passionate about odd shit and wanted to tell their story their way. Uh, and it will not reach a mass audience at, by any means because it's just too strange, but it's going to reach into the hearts of all of the weirdos watching. And that is Eddie Alcazar's film Divinity. Uh, Divinity is a sci-fi movie. It takes place in sort of this dystopian near future where... Uh, they explain that fertility rates have taken like a, a a dive, like only 7% of the population is still fertile. And there's a, a cult of women led by the actress Bella Thorne, who sort of hide out and are trying to uh, keep their, essentially keep their wombs safe for the world away from uh, many other men. Whereas uh, Stephen Dorff plays this character who has uh overtaken a 
It's like a pharmaceutical company that was founded by his father, who's played by Scott Bakula. And Scott Bakula and Stephen Dorff, after he uh, died, took over manufacture of this divinity serum that essentially makes you live forever. And it doesn't just make you live forever, but there's a lot of this ultra-masculine imagery. You inject yourself with this serum, and it's like a steroid. It turns men into these giant, hulking, supermodel dudes. And there's a lot of this, like, sweaty, muscly imagery going on. And lurking in the background are a pair of these two twin brothers who might be aliens who have kidnapped Stephen Dorff and are now going to force feed him his own serum to see what happens. And very slowly over the course of the film, the Stephen Dorff character more or less turns into the Incredible Hulk. Meanwhile, there's this subplot with a sex worker who comes to visit the twins while they have Stephen Dorff tied to a chair. And she at first thinks these twins are clients, but then realizes that they're a little bit off and takes it upon herself to introduce them to this world of wild hedonism and physical pleasure. So there's, you know, scenes where they just go dancing and they go to parties and stuff, and it all climaxes in this wonderful stop-motion fight between uh, an alien and a monster on this really wonderful black-and-white set, like, miniature set. This was shot on 16mm film in black-and-white. It has this glorious, like, eraser-head-esque... Uh, black and white shimmering silver texture that is just gorgeous to look at. It's something I just personally love. And, you know, you put stop motion in your movie and I'm, I'm going to perk up. I just love stop. I just love the way it looks. I love that kind of jitteriness to, to stop motion animation. Uh, yeah, this is an odd one. This is one where it, it kind of reminds you that strange movies can still come along every once in a while. Uh, it's also trying to say something many things as it turns out it's one of those films that gets a little bit like stumbles over its own feet because it's so ambitious but i always like that i was like when a film pushes itself a little bit too far in the service of its own strange ideas when a filmmaker just really lets themselves go completely hog wild and lets themselves explore whatever creative avenues they want so if, even if it is a little bit sloppy it's really, really exciting because it's so striking. Uh, Divinity is gorgeously striking, incredibly odd. Uh, I think by my description, you probably know whether or not you love it, or you would you would love it if you were to see it. Uh, if it sounds really strange and off-putting, it is. It's strange and off-putting, but I like strange and off-putting. I like really sort of challenging movies, especially movies like this that have ideas about... Uh, you know, dystopia and the pharmaceutical company run amok and uh, male's obsession with uh, gender roles and hyper-masculinity and the role of sex and all of this and how sex can be wielded for oneself but also also wielded for like more positive means. Uh, all of this is sort of mixed up in this really strange like little bubbling black and white brew. I love Divinity. Please seek out Divinity. Divinity is really, really, really good. Um, also really, really good and, you know, shift gears completely is uh, a film called More Than Ever. It's directed by Emily Atef and it stars Vicky Creeps as a woman who has a really rare, and this is like a, a rather, we're, we're get, steering well, well away from fantasy. This is about a woman who has been diagnosed with a really rare and fatal 
a lung ailment. She uh, is, and she's dying. This is not a movie about how she is going to find a miracle cure. There are some scenes early on where she and her, uh, I think it's her husband, uh, who's played by Gaspard Uliel, who actually died in real life recently, the late Gaspard Uliel, um, where they're going to doctors and they're actually consulting about possible cures or la- like last-minute operations that can be done. But this isn't a movie about those last-minute operations. This isn't a movie about grasping for hope. This is a movie about dying. This is a movie about facing death. This is a movie about the Vicky Creeps character. Her name is Helen. She is trying to essentially live out her final days as best she can. And that doesn't mean like giving herself over to, you know, the the pleasures she never had. It's just about being comfortable in the day. And as it turns out, she's been going on to uh, like websites and finding other people who are terminally ill and starting up conversations. She makes a friend on one of these online forums. Um, One thing that uh, she sort of rolls her eyes at her eyes at uh, throughout the movie is uh, when an, somebody who's not ill says, oh, you're so brave. And she's like, I'm not brave. How dare you say that to me? I'm not brave. I'm just dying. And uh, she finds that what she really wants in the last days of her life are to essentially be alone. She just wants to go out to a small cabin somewhere and not like die there in some sort of dramatic way or, you know, die there in some theatrical way or to make some kind of message. She just wants to get away from any kind of noise or busyness. And this of course means being away from her husband and, you know, there's a lot of emotional push and pull. What does that mean? How much, you know, how is this going to affect her husband? And, uh, you know, what, what is it going to mean to have friends at the end of her life? Uh, it's about appreciating beauty, but there's nothing sentimental about this movie. There's nothing treacly about this movie. It's actually incredibly down to earth. Uh, a lot of that is dictated by Vicky Creep's performance. She is really, uh, we get to see every bit of her struggle and every bit of her pain and every bit of her happiness as well. Uh, people who are have terminal diseases are still alive. They're still living and they still need to sort of face their lives as they go forward. Uh, the, um, so there's a lot of sort of shots of her just trying to appreciate beauty and trying to look out in the world, but it's not this kind of beatific moment because she has, has trouble breathing and she is also, you know, watching her life kind of slip away. It's about sort of not even raging against the dying of the light. It's just about sitting and appreciating the light as it slowly goes out. That's incredibly sad. It's incredibly poignant, but it's also incredibly real. I like that how Vicky Creeps really gets into the gets into her character and all of the emotional complexity therein. There's a lot of things she does that might be a little bit contradictory, but you know what? She's facing the end of her life. There would there's a lot going on in her mind. Um it's really really terrific mostly because of the direction. Um I'm unfamiliar with uh, Emily Ataf. Uh look her up here for a second. Um she's a German-born French-Iranian filmmaker. Um, she uh, directed a movie called XX2XY, a short. It's about uh, uh, transitioning. Uh, she did uh, a film in 2018 called Three Days in Kibaron, which I had heard about, but I didn't actually watch. Uh, she's already directed another feature film, but 
uh, her her just assurance at letting her actors and letting sort of her very locked down frill frills free filmmaking uh, you know, it demonstrates a kind of assurance of of her own skill that uh, that is really really admirable. And of course, Vicky Creeps is gives one of the best performances of the year. She's really really fantastic. Um, but enough of the death drama. <laughs> Let's move on to a comedy film. Uh, there's a film uh, also playing. It was written and directed by Mariam Keshavars. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. And it's called The Persian Version. It's about a young woman. She's played by uh, Leila Mohammadi. And she is a young Persian woman living in New York. And she has a very wild party kind of a lifestyle. She's a classic young woman. She goes to uh, a classic young woman. Listen to me. Uh, she's just a, a young person who is out enjoying life and she is going out to parties and getting very drunk. And she already has an ex-wife who she runs into in a, uh, in, in a grocery store. And there's a little bit of bitterness over the sort of their breakup. She, because she is very American and because she is queer, she is ousted from her rather large Iranian family. And she comes to blows a lot with her mother who's played, uh, her mother is named Shireen. She's played by a wonderful actress named Nyosha Noor. And all while she's sort of traversing modern life and trying to, uh, trying to ingratiate herself and get some positivity going with her family. It, she finds out that she's pregnant. She has uh, sex with a young man who is, uh, playing Hedvig in a local production of Hedvig and the Angry Inch. Uh, so, you know, she's queer, but she sleeps with this guy and she gets pregnant by this guy. And it's about, you know, part of her drama is about, you know, how, how she's going to traverse being pregnant, how she's going to form a relationship with the father and how her family, her very uh, of, of two cultures family is going to react to this. Uh, it is a, a very much about the immigrant diaspora in a way that's actually not terribly creative or interesting. I feel like that uh, everything to do with Layla is not very interesting. She's actually kind of a shallow character and a lot of the humor and a lot of uh, her like fourth wall breaking and addressing the camera and all of that energy feels really cliched. It feels like something from the 90s. It's really kind of dated and, and played out. It's not until we're focusing on the Shireen character, her mom, uh, that things get a little bit interesting. Uh, there's this film was told in flashbacks, so we have Layla in the modern day, then we have Layla as a child back in like the late '80s and early '90s, and how she and her mother's relationship kind of evolved. Her mother is from Iran, and we actually get to see flashbacks to her in the 1980s and how her husband has always been afflicted by terrible health problems, and she's always had hospital bills, and she became uh, a really hardworking uh, champion of of the local real estate game and how she would sort of rent or rent out or sell properties to immigrant families because that was an untapped market at the time. So we actually get to see her ambition and how she was caring for her family, but how that led to a little bit of emotional neglect that her daughter uh, uh, resented. All of that stuff's kind of interesting. And then about two thirds of the way through the movie, we get another flashback to the mom's childhood back in Iran and the things she suffered in these early scenes as a young woman. And when she, uh, as a young woman, she's played by an actress named command. I'm going to apologize. I'm going to butcher this, uh, Shafia Sabet. And she's re she is really kind of unlocks a lot about 
not just the character, but also the movie about how much change and struggle had that had to go into moving a family from Iran to America. Uh, And all of that stuff feels a lot more emotionally honest, even there's still the fourth wall breaking and there's still a lot more um, explanation in a very sort of Frank hip, uh, anachronistically modern kind of a way. But for the flashback sequences, that actually functions a lot better for the mom character than it does for the main character, who's kind of not terribly interesting. So it's a bit of a mixed bag. Uh, Most of it is pretty cliched, but there's like a lot of emotional, interesting like emotional hooks hiding in there. And that's pretty, that's pretty good. That's all right. It's not great. Uh, it is pretty good. <laughs> and because William's not here to sort of interrupt me and, uh, you know, give his own take on this material, we're just steaming through these things. Cause we've talked about, uh, five nights at Freddy's talked about killers of the flower moon, talked about divinity, talked about more than ever. Uh, talked about the fir- the Persian version, Here's a movie that came out a couple weeks ago. It was released, um, depending, like it was in theaters limited. It played at some film festivals, uh, but I didn't get a chance to actually talk about it. So I'm going to go back a little bit, pad this episode out a little bit, and talk about a film called Shaky Shivers. Uh, Shaky Shivers is a horror comedy uh, directed by Sung Kang, the actor from uh, the Fast and the Furious movies uh, and many other things besides he was in Better Luck Tomorrow. Uh, yeah, he he directed a movie, and rather curiously, he decided to make a horror comedy. Uh, the horror comedy is about two teenage girls. Uh, they're played by uh, Vivian Nguyen, and oh gosh, I, I lost the other one's name. <laughs> uh, Brooke Markham. There it is. Brooke Markham is the other one. And they are slackers out of like clerks they're like really slugabeds not terribly intelligent and they have run afoul of an old woman who has entered their like frozen yogurt shop or their their ice cream parlor and she says you are because you didn't give me free ice cream you're cursed then they go on a road trip together these two teenage girls and wouldn't you know it one of them happens to be a werewolf now uh, and a lot of the movie takes place at an abandoned uh, summer camp, which it, it looks like they were filming guerrilla style. This movie looks incredibly cheap. So they went out into some like empty bunk beds and they're chaining people up They're They have a book of evil and they're trying to uh, like resurrect the dead so they can get some advice. All of these ideas are really, really fun. Yeah, uh, there's a, a corpse that they have to uh, reanimate. He's played by an actor named Jilly, Jimmy Bellinger. Uh, and there, you can see that the screenwriters are trying really, really hard to make something really kind of broad and fun out of uh, a kind of low-budget Evil Dead kind of a movie. Evil Dead spoofs or Evil Dead budget-level comedies are actually almost as are, are probably more common now than the actual horror films they're spoofing. Um, you watch movies like the cabin in the woods. It's like, that's a spoof of cabin in the woods movies. Well, spoofs of cabin in the woods movies are now like a lot more common than actual cabin in the wood movies. Those were hip in the 1980s. And it's almost sad that we keep on going back at this late date. It's 2023 and spoof things that, you know, several generations weren't around to grow up with. Uh, Sung Kang clearly likes those sorts of old movies and he's really trying his hardest to send these things up. But 
I think the low budget really hurts this one. They're not uh, capable of getting complicated shots or adding a lot of energy uh, like the way a Sam Raimi might have. Uh, And there's also not a lot going on in the story. I think I gave you everything that goes on in this movie. Um, You know, there's, okay, there's like a a werewolf twist, but it's not really an exciting werewolf transformation scene. Uh, There's not a a sort of flip Kevin Williamson, Joss Whedon-ish sarcasm about the material. It, It just sort of lays really flat. And just like Five Nights at Freddy's, it feels like they're trying to introduce you to a lot of these things, but it's not a funny enough comedy to really get a younger viewer hooked into Cabin in the Woods kinds of dramas or uh, this kind of uh, hipster, hip-talking, slacker character kind of a comedy. Just go back and see the originals. Go back and see you know, Evil Dead 2. Go back and watch Slacker or Clerks or any of the, these kinds of movies that had these types of characters back in the 1990s. Uh, it's I don't want to give the impression that this is trying to be like a throwback necessarily, but it's clearly referring... Like, it's not told in that sort of a style. It's not set in the 80s, but it's clearly trying to evoke a lot of what's familiar about the genre. It's clearly sending up a lot of what uh, what a horror audience might be super familiar with. And uh, it it doesn't pay off in any kind of interesting way. Uh, the, the two leads are funny enough, but it, it just doesn't come to any kind of interesting head. Uh, Sung Kang is really, really trying, but really, 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 they need a lot more money. They need a lot more time to play with. Uh, it's, it's a really short movie, but, uh, it's just not strange enough. It's not exciting enough. It's not funny enough. It's not scary. It just sort of is a little bit of a, it's almost like a, a rough draft. Sung Kang was like, just trying to make a movie just to see if he can make it. And okay, you made something that resembles a movie, but it, it doesn't cohere in any kind of, uh, fascinating, interesting, or a uh, notable way. Um, we didn't talk about it. Now I have. Maybe I shouldn't have. Uh, it's just, you know, mostly a negative experience. And that's, uh, golly, that's that's the movies. Um, so yeah, William's not here. He wasn't able to sort of interject, but I was able to ramble about a whole bunch of movies for about 45 minutes. So if you liked this, if you like this format of me just sort of rambling for a long, long time, let us know. Maybe we can do this, uh, you know, more solo episodes in the future just to make sure that you you get the shows that you deserve. Uh, this is a, That's also a special thanks to our Patreon supporters. Thank you for supporting us on Patreon if you do. Uh, Critically Acclaimed Network is is the name of our Patreon, so just go over, go over there. You can get... Uh, you can subscribe at like a $1 tier if you just want to give us a little bit of money, but that also gives you access to polls. You can vote on polls uh, to, that dictate the content of our podcast. Uh, it, at higher tiers, you can get access to other shows that uh, William and I do. We're reviewing every episode of Star Trek, all of the Star Treks uh, right now. And we're partway, we just started uh, season five of Star Trek The Next Generation. And that also gets you all of our back episodes. We had a lot of really wonderful shows about the 1966 Batman series. We had a series where we explored the prehistory of Star Wars. That is all of the films that inspired the Star Wars movies uh, and many, many other things besides. I wrote a bunch of audio dramas. Well, not a bunch. I wrote four of them. Uh, and those are available at the $20 tier. If you are a $20 subscriber, you can get these 30-minute audio dramas that I scripted and directed myself. There's a whole cast of actors and music and sound effects. All of that. 
really, really wonderful. If you want to contact William and I on the social media, uh, we're at Critic Acclaim. Critically Acclaimed was too long, but you can go on to Blue Sky. That's the one I think we're using the most. We're still on Twitter, although we don't, you know, try not to touch it too much. Uh, and we're on the Instagram. You can contact us there if you want to follow us there. If you find this show and you like it, if you liked my, my solo idiocy, or if you want to hear just like it in general, you can leave us a review. That always helps us. Reviews push our show up in the algorithm so it shows up higher on other people's lists and it just sort of spreads word faster whether it's a positive or a negative review so go ahead and do it if you hate it recommend us to your enemies uh next week we're going to be talking about more movies more th- more things are going to come out it's you know sort of the end of the halloween season so we probably won't be talking about too many more horror movies but uh yeah, be sure to come back and do that. If you want to write us a letter, if this was something you wanted to talk about, if there was something I said or something you needed to correct, because Lord knows I probably got a lot wrong, uh, you can actually send us an email. Send it to a letters at criticallyacclaimed.net, or you can actually uh, send us a physical letter. We have letter reading episodes, and we can respond to your uh, your letters and your queries on that uh, on a, a show called We've Got Mail. So send us an actual physical letter. We get it in a post office box. Send it to the Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. We don't get so many letters that we will uh, skip over letters. Uh, if you send us a letter, it's pretty much a guarantee that we'll read it on our show. So go ahead and do that. Uh, Again, let's uh, let's give some positive thoughts out to William Bibiani, who is uh, still in the midst of a rather stressful move. Uh, send him some good vibes. Send him some positive messages on social media. I'm sure he would appreciate it because he's bleeding exhausted after moving all of his stuff from one location to another. Uh, we're probably going to be recording. Uh, our recording schedule is going to change a little bit just because we live so much further apart now. So we're going to see how this all shakes out. See how uh, our new recording schedule and our new work schedule and how getting together and recording in person. We might we might be doing a lot more recording remotely, but uh, from what I understand, our remote episodes don't uh, like a lot of our fans can't really tell the difference. Maybe William interrupts me a lot less. That might be the only real difference because he, you know, we have to sort of take turns when we're recording. Uh, but oh, but before I go, let me just run down the movies again real quick. Uh, Five Nights at Freddy's C minus. You can skip that one. Uh, Killers of the Flower Moon C plus might be one of the best films of the year. Divinity definitely C plus. That was one of my favorites. I love the the you know weird ass cult movies. Um, more than ever, a C plus. Vicky Creeps gives a really, really wonderful performance. The Persian version is kind of a low C. It's not a total wash, but it's a little bit obnoxious. And Shaky Shivers definitely a C minus. It, it's hampered by its low budget. It's really, really just not coming together as a real movie. It feels like it's not finished. Uh, but yeah, that's the movies. Thanks for listening. We appreciate it. And uh, never forget, everyone is a critic. I'm sorry, what?